Welcome to Eat Blog Talk, where food bloggers come to get their fill of the latest tips, tricks, and insight into the world of food blogging. If you feel that hunger for information, we'll provide you with the tools you need to add value to your blog, and we'll also ensure you're taking care of yourself because food blogging is a demanding job. Now, please welcome your host, Megan Porta. Food bloggers, don't forget to check out the food blogging forum style community that we started over at forum.eatblogtalk.com. Finally, there's one place that we can all convene and talk and that isn't scattered all over Facebook. Here are the things that I am loving about it. It is free. It also allows for categorized discussions on all food blogging topics And there's a category for sharing successes, aka self-promotion. So no more holding back about discussing your big wins and things that you're promoting. Also, everything is in one single spot. So no hopping around from group to group. And there's an amazing opportunity to network and really get to know your fellow food bloggers in a single place. So come join the discussions that are going on over at forum.eatblogtalk.com. And I hope you enjoy this as much as I do. Don't forget forum.eatblogtalk.com. Okay, food bloggers, have you heard of Flowdesk, the new big email marketing rage? This is an amazing new option for managing your email subscriber list. It is super easy to use and it comes with gorgeous, intuitive drag and drop templates. And Flowdesk does not charge based on number of subscribers. So your monthly rate will stay the same from month to month. Everyone pays $38 a month or use my affiliate link to get 50% off and pay only $19 a month. You guys, this is a fraction of the price of other email service providers, and you'll be blown away by the beautiful and intuitive templates waiting for you inside. Visit eatblogtalk.com forward slash resources to grab your link. Flowdesk, the stunning new option for email marketing. Awesome food bloggers. I wanted to let you know about something that we are working on developing right now. It is a new awesome way for you to get connected with other food bloggers and to help you feel connected in your food blogging journey. Sign up today to get exclusive details as well as a special launch discount. You are not going to want to miss out on this. So head over to eatblogtalk.com forward slash launch to stay in the loop as things unfold with this project. It's a really exciting project and opportunity, so I cannot wait to share more with you about it. Again, go to eatblogtalk.com forward slash launch. What's up, food bloggers? Welcome to Eat Blog Talk, the podcast made for food bloggers seeking value for their businesses and their lives. Today, I have Bethany Smith from foodblogusability.com with me for the fourth time, and we are going to talk about the hot new topic, web accessibility. Bethany helps food bloggers by taking a deep dive into the hows and whys of communicating and connecting with their followers. She focuses on the concepts surrounding user experience design and how to make blogs user-friendly. Bethany has a background in web design, digital content, marketing, and also management. Bethany, I always love chatting with you, and I'm excited to talk about this topic because it's very relevant right now. But before we do that, 
Do you have a fourth fun fact to share with us? I did think of something. I feel like my fun facts are getting hopefully slightly more interesting over time, (laughs) actually. Like, you know, there's people who can always just pull out any story or fact about them. Yeah. But that is not me. But this one, because we're talking about accessibility issues, so it's kind of thinking about that as it relates to that. And one of the things that's interesting when you start delving into accessibility and learning about disability is that people often have temporary disabilities, right? So you like break your arm and that's not a permanent thing, but you may not be able to use something for a while because of it. So for me, I have had two kids, so two two pregnancies with them, and neither of them were easy. But with my uh, second one, I had an irritable uterus, which is actually a thing, which basically means you have contractions all the time. (laughs) So something irritates your uterus. So with me, it was mainly activity. So if I was walking any sort of distance, like it was usually okay around the house as long as I wasn't like being really active, but you know, walking to the store, walking out in and out of the office for doctor's appointments, I'd get these contractions and they'd like stay. It felt like they stayed for like hours or a couple times, even a day. So it'd just be like contracted. And it wasn't like the super painful ones, but it was the like just a lot of pressure, kind of more like Yeah, the annoying ones. Monthly cramps sort of thing. And then just, you know, like when you have the babies and the strollers and you know, I just felt like I was really not able to be mobile very well for a kind of a good amount of time. And that just kind of opened my eyes to like what some people have to go through, you know, for their whole lives. And luckily once once I had the baby, it was gone. gone. Yeah. But it was like, and it's just hard to explain to like men or people who haven't been pregnant sometimes too. I'm like, no, like it's, I can't, like if I walk, Mm, I get these contractions and then once it acted up, it would get worse. So then I'd have to rest a lot more and then then maybe I could do. It gives you perspective though, right? Having those temporary issues definitely does. And I share that with you. I was not diagnosed with irritable uterus, but I'm pretty sure I had that for both my pregnancies. I was on bed rest for pretty much the duration of both of my pregnancies because of that. Like I could not, I couldn't even walk around my house. It was, it was so bad. And so I feel you after that. I was like, I am free. I'm a free woman. I can actually like go to the store and walk and do laundry. And my husband had to do everything for me during those pregnancies. So he was, um, he was awesome. But yeah, I feel you. It is not fun. Thank you, Bethany, for providing the most perfect fun fact ever for the topic we're talking about. (laughs) Okay. So let's have a discussion about web accessibility. You, Bethany, are a user experience design expert. So I think you're a really great resource for food bloggers right now who are wondering what all of this commotion is about surrounding web accessibility. So would you mind talking us through the background of web accessibility and just describe what it is? Yeah, so web accessibility has been around since the beginning of the internet. And with within user experience, it's one of the major categories that we look at. And so really what it is, is just making sure that everybody has access 
to what's on the web, right? And one of the things that's amazing about the web is that it actually is pretty simple. I know it doesn't feel that way, <laughs> probably if you're going to listen to all <laughs> this, but compared to what you would have to do in some other settings or settings that maybe have no way to be accessible to everybody, there are ways to make the web accessible to essentially everybody, which is really amazing. And yeah, so there's been all these guidelines. We're going to talk about the WCAG, WCAG uh, guidelines a bit later, and those were first developed, I think, in the late 90s. And so it's just been around. It's not been something that many website developers have probably taken as seriously as we should have for a while. I think at the start, part of the thing was that um, just society as a whole wasn't taking websites as seriously. So they weren't looking at it as something that was really this extension of life that everybody needed access to. So I think that's why accessibility hasn't been as much of a thing because there's just been this attitude that it's this extra thing, right? And when you start looking at the laws, which is why this has kind of become a whole thing now is because of some lawsuits around web accessibility. The laws here and in many places were put on the books before websites really took off and so it doesn't have specific language around it but the language it does have talks about anything that's publicly accessible so I mean that's why you go into like a restaurant and there's always like in the stalls there's a like handicap wheelchair accessible stall or there's you know on the sidewalks those ramps to go up and um, so anywhere that like the public is kind of invited to needs to be made accessible so that's what a lot of these court battles are about is deciding if websites are considered these publicly accessible things. And most people now looking at it would say, yes, they are something that's integral to life. They're something that the whole public is invited to and should have access to. And so they also need to be made accessible, both legally and just because you you want everybody to be able to use what you provide, right? So one of the interesting things, too, that people don't think about, like we were talking about, is about 20% of people have some sort of disability. And most people will have a disability, well, probably all people, over their lives. Like we talked about whether it's a temporary one or just as you age, you know, you have more problems with vision, you have more problems with, like, if you can use a mouse or not, because maybe you can't use your hand as well. So it's something that's going to affect all of us and something that is affecting about 20% of people right now. That was such a great description. And that just gave me perspective like, yeah, there's always access for wheelchairs and like physical places allow, you know, options for people who are in wheelchairs or who have disabilities of some sort. So why not the internet? Because the public is accessing the internet all of us are, so why not? So I guess it, it makes sense, and that kind of like helped me to wrap my head around it. So I love the way you describe that. And that is kind of the like people who say the web doesn't have to be accessible. They do get hung up on the parts of the law that say there's something I think that mentions like physical places, and so mm-hmm. that's kind of what's being fought out in the courts in a variety of different ways to say, well, <laughs> but now that we have the internet, we also mean that 
Yeah, that makes sense. I think it's actually a good sign because it's like people are taking not just food blogs, but people who make a living online a little bit more seriously. Like you mentioned before, when people hear like, I'm a food blogger, I work with food bloggers, they're like, I have absolutely no idea what that means, but okay. (laughs) And even though they probably use food blogs and interact with them, isn't that interesting that it's just like, it doesn't compute that there are businesses and people behind all of the recipe blogs putting all of that content together. But eventually, yeah. I think people are going to have to learn what's going on. But okay, well, so I, th- that- I think oh, with ahead. all of the like coronavirus stuff, I think people are becoming much more aware of how much mm, they do. Good point. On the yeah, and I I think we'll see some changes just like in kind of what like public perception of it um, come about more quickly because of that. But yeah, like working because I've worked with a lot of different businesses when I was doing more focusing on web development and there is this huge disconnect. People just don't really understand how prevalent website use is, Google is, all of this stuff, even if they use it. Yeah. Topic, I guess. It is. (laughs) It's really interesting. I, I find that fascinating. So we'll do that. Maybe, um, episode number five for you. (laughs) Okay, so I loved your description of what it is and kind of the background. So, and you talked about this a little bit, but maybe touch a little bit more on why it's a hot topic now, why this is something that food bloggers listening should really be digging into. Yeah, so there's been an increase. Well, first, I mean, this isn't like this is kind of been the catalyst for people paying attention to it, but you shouldn't really be doing it just because you may get sued over it, right? You should be doing it because there's real people that want to access your website, like we talked about before, you know. And like I said, it's about 20% of people have some sort of disability. And I think it's about, especially if people, well, I might get this set wrong, but I think it's people over 40, about 15% of them have some sort of visual impairment. So, I mean, that might just mean that they need to use glasses or they just can't you know, see smaller text or whatever it is, right? So it's really a large portion of people out there. And so, I mean, I think that's the the real reason. And it it takes the stress off if you think of it that way, whether rather than thinking of it as trying to avoid a lawsuit, because that's very stressful in, you know, just running a business opens you up for lawsuits, whether, no matter what, right? Yeah, right. And so... I think here I'll kind of sidestep and address another thing. I have heard some food bloggers ask, well, I don't monetize my site. Does that mean I still have to do this? Um, we think one, you should do it just because it's a great thing to do. But two, I don't think monetization is going to be the requirement legally. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, right? This is not legal advice. I'm not a lawyer. Mm-hmm. But um, if you are opening your website up to the public and you're kind of inviting the public in, then it should be accessible. I don't think making money at it is the thing, right? If you genuinely have a food blog, which probably nobody listening is in this case because you probably won't listen to this podcast, (laughs) (laughs) Um, that you're just like, oh, I'm just really putting this up for, for my friends. It's just like my mom. It's just, you know, then yes, you can do whatever you want. But even if you're not not monetizing it now, you plan to in the future, you don't ever plan to, or it's like something 
maybe adjacent to other things you do and it's not directly monetized, any of that, I think, I would guess legally would need to fall into this. These lawsuits have have been coming up. There's been a spike in many of them lately across the board with just web accessibility issues. But there also has been some court cases about it that have ruled that websites do need to be accessible. So one of the main ones was um, Domino's Pizza, and somebody sued because their website and app were not accessible. Uh, I think it was a blind person. And it went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided not to actually take on that case, which basically meant they left the ruling standing that said that Domino's did, in fact, have to make their um, their website and their app accessible. So that's also kind of been the catalyst in the past year that happened to really make people think a lot more about this. Um, with Domino's, they tied it to the physical location. Well, you're fi- you have a physical location that's open to the public, and so your website is an extension of that, and so it also needs to be accessible. I am not aware of any cases about businesses that are just fully online. And so that's what's interesting about this food blog one. Like, I don't mm-hmm. believe she has any, well, I'm sure she doesn't have a physical location, but I don't think she even sells physical products or anything. And she, she said too, that she's going to try to, I don't know much about how like these legal cases work, mm-hmm. but she's going to try to not settle and basically have it go through the courts or go wherever so that there may actually be a ruling on it that would then help food bloggers and really anybody with a digital space have more guidelines around what they should or shouldn't do or have to do legally. And so hopefully we can kind of understand legally what's required better from that. And that should help to quell other lawsuits if we actually have something on the book saying these are the standards you need to use or these are the standards you don't need to use or whatever. So it'll be interesting to see how that how that eventually all plays out. But I think these things can take a lot of time. So, you know, when yeah. we'll know that, I don't know. When it will happen, who knows? Yeah. But I agree. I'm kind of, I'm looking for, not looking forward to it. That's a horrible thing to say, but I'm, <laughs> I'm glad that we will have a standard, whether that's in our favor or not, you know, just so we have kind of, because right now we're kind of just floundering. Like, what do we need to focus on? How much do we need to really dive into this? Etc. So I think once it's run its course, then we'll have a much better grasp on it. And I feel terrible that she has to be the one to have to go through this. I mean, what an awful thing, right? But yeah, so to be continued on that. But in the meantime, there are definitely things that we can do to our blogs and to our videos and also in social media that can make our content more accessible. And I think it's extremely likely that these guidelines and things we'll talk through are going to be what the court said. If they say anything towards you have to make it accessible and this is what you need to follow, the things that we'll talk about are be. Okay. are yeah. going to be the things. So it's not like, oh, we totally don't know, right? Right. Um, it's like if you do these things and kind of start the process and working towards it, you're going to be like really close to whatever comes out of this so well let's talk through some of those things yeah 
So let's kind of divide it up into categories. So let's start with blogs and then we'll move on to videos, which is part of the blog, but you know, an extension. And then we'll talk about social media. So specifically on our blogs, what are some things that we can do to make them more accessible? Okay. So um, there's several things. What you should look at is the web content accessibility guidelines, um, WCAG, which is weird to say. <laughs> and um, so those are the guidelines kind of put out by the like people who standardize HTML and JavaScript and all of that. They have these guidelines. And there is a WCAG 2.0 and 2.1 that are both internationally accepted that this is basically the accessibility standards that people need to need to work towards. And there's different guidelines for, well, there's not different guidelines. There's guidelines that would affect different people in the process, right? So some speak more to like a developer or to even the people who put WordPress together. Some speak more to, you know, just different parts of the process. So some of it is more applicable to content producers, which is basically what food bloggers are. So there's four main topics. There's a better term than topics, but within these guidelines and the acronym is POOR. So it's perceivable, operable, understandable, and robust. And those last two don't apply as much to food bloggers, but I'll talk through a couple things here. Uh, so one thing that is big is making link labels clear. So instead of saying click here, it should have the actual name of the recipe or the actual name of whatever it's doing. So download my meal plan instead of just download or instead of click here. Because especially if somebody's using a screen reader or if they can't use a mouse and they're just tabbing through or like a variety of different ways people will try to access the internet, it makes it really hard to understand if every link on your page just says click here. Can I ask you real quick, what about link colors? Maybe you were going to get into that, but is there like a set standard for link colors or not? Also has to do with the font you use and like how thick the font is because really thin ones are harder to see. So you want to find it a font that's thicker. Also the size of your font, which is good for mobile. You want it to be larger. I think um, for your main text, 16, 16 pixels is kind of the lowest size you should have. Really, those are really quick fixes, right? Yeah. I mean, if you go to the contrast checker, check for contrast, make sure you're using an appropriately sized font, make sure your font is the right color and your links are the right color. And that's like, you're fixing everything. Yeah. 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 It should be really easy with CSS to just like go in there right. um, and do it you know, back like a long, long time ago when everything was hand coded and then you'd have to go like search and replace every, <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> like every exactly. instance of it. But yeah, now it, you can make these changes like site-wide really easily. So I do think that's one of the um, things you can focus on at first because you can make pretty drastic changes with that. And just like step back and look at your website and be like, does this look readable to me? Mm -hmm. Like, is it easy for me to see? 
if you wear glasses, sometimes I take off my glasses and I try to kind of see it like that, right? And yeah, <laughs> see how much I can I can still see. So yeah, the other thing is with the colors, look at your recipe card because I see that a lot on recipe cards where the background color has been changed to say like a, a gray color. And then that really changes the contrast of the text. And so it's a lot harder to read your recipe card often than the rest of your blog, which your recipe card should be the easiest thing to see on mm-hmm. there because that's kind of the the point the main of thing. the thing there. So yeah, so I guess jumping into also the recipe cards, Yeah, the way I interpret some of these guidelines, the ones around bypass blocks is that I do think a jump to recipe button is necessary to meet accessibility because basically like if somebody's using a screen reader or some of these other adaptive technologies, they have to go through the whole site and they can't just necessarily scroll, right? Um, They're tabbing through or there's a variety of ways to do it, right? And if they want to look at the recipe saying just like, well, you can just scroll down. It only takes half a second. It doesn't for them. And it can be very confusing Mm -hmm. depending how, you know, if they've zoomed in, if they've like, there's a lot of different things that could be going on that would make it very hard to find the recipe card. And so that's one of the principles is having what is called a bypass block that would direct you to the main content. So one of the examples in these guidelines they gave was around a a news organization's homepage that has a lot of just like bloggers, right? Has some ads, has some, you know, different features for other posts, other things, but the main story is down a bit and is kind of harder to find. And so they suggest that on this news organization site, they have like a jump to main story uh, Mm -hmm. button. And so that's, essentially the same as the jump to recipe button. So I guess also it depends how you interpret main content. Right. Food bloggers, right, may feel like, well, the actual blog post is my main content. I think Yoast does this is the reading score, like the the flesh something reading score. So you want that probably lower so more people can read it. Um, So these are all just good user experience things, but also accessibility things. Because we tend to think also about people with more physical disabilities. There's also people with cognitive abilities that maybe can't read as well for a variety of reasons, or they can't understand things as well. And so making the sentences shorter, making the language just more user-friendly. So like lower reading levels on those those scores would be ideal. I think that... Keep it simple. Yeah, keep it simple. (laughs) Okay, so outside of the actual recipe, I know there are some things inside the post that we should be thinking about, such as alt tags. So can you talk to us about alt tags for images? And like, should we have that on all our images? And then I would also love it if you gave us an example of, I know we don't have any visuals, but like, So actually, this is something I've learned more recently, too. So if an image is considered a display image, which is not something that food bloggers use a ton of, but I mean, sometimes you'll have like little icons or just little things that are not like they're just a visual thing, right? Or like on my blog post, I usually do add a an image to the top that's just like this stock image. 
but it really has nothing to do with what, well, okay. It has to do with what is in the blog <laughs> post, but it's not adding any extra information. It's not right? vital. Yeah. Yeah. It's just decorative. So images that are just decorative actually need a blank alt text. So your theme for the most part will deal with that, right? So I don't want to say every single image always needs an actual text in the alt text. Um, you can have ones that have blank alt text if they're not providing any extra. So anything that's relevant, really. Yeah, so anything that's okay. relevant. So for food bloggers, most of the images you're adding, probably all of them, do need alt text in it. And most of you use WordPress, but so there's a way to add it in through that. It's probably best to maybe do a Google search and learn a little bit about how WordPress puts alt text in based on the media library and based on if you just insert it through your post when you're writing your post, because it's a little confusing because they don't always work together very well, the media library and the um, what you're putting in your post. Mm. So just look it up. I also will link in the show notes. I have a downloadable guide about accessibility that walks you through the steps and it has links and a little bit more information on this and on all of this that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And you want an example. So I was thinking about this a bit last night too, because I've heard questions from food bloggers about like, you're not, you're not really supposed to repeat the same words over and over in your alt text, mm. which food bloggers have historically been using this for SEO purposes or for Pinterest purposes, which is not what it's for. It's never been for that. Um, it's to make it accessible for people who are using screen readers, but also people who say have low speed internet may have their images turned off, right? So there's a variety of reasons mm. for it. But I've heard food bloggers saying or asking, you know, like I have all these pictures and it's basically the same thing. Like, how do I not use the same text? So I think the answer to that is actually stop putting images of all the same thing. But from a user perspective, they don't want or need to see five or six pictures essentially of the finished dish, kind of the same shot, just from a little bit of a different angle, right? And overwhelmingly, people were saying they only need to see a couple of a finished dish. And even with process shots, they were saying, well, sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's not. So it's not something your user necessarily needs so mm. if you're running yeah, that's i like that you said that just like well maybe we're not solving the right problem maybe we need to yeah eliminate because otherwise how would you if, if you're looking at the same exact thing then yeah you would write you would write the same alt text for everything more simple is better and to the point so it does does just need to say bowl of chili yeah Right? Like you can't really get around that. So if you <laughs> run into the issue where you feel like your alt text is the same exact thing five times, maybe. Yeah. Do you um, know if there's a length? Like, is there a, a character? I mean, I know there's not a character length that you need to stop at, but what is sufficient? Like 10 words or less, seven words or less? Yeah. Most of you are just shooting your food. You wouldn't need more than that. If it is a process shot and you are kind of showing like, how to roll pie dough or something, you might need more words to actually kind of explain what's going on in it, right? Whatever is being communicated in that, you need to put in 
but most examples with food bloggers, it should be really short. And um, you can get into things like infographics. Some of you may be using something like that. And that's kind of a whole other <laughs> thing where you, um, there's some different ways because you don't want your alt text to be like just retyping everything that's on the infographic. So in that case, you would need either in the blog post to summarize what's in the infographic, or you could have a separate text file that's downloadable that mm -hmm. you would like link maybe in the caption or something that has all the details um, in text about what's on that. I image never thought about that. That's a really good point because it's an image, so you don't have any of the text, you know, showing up. So, uh, okay, how would you do that? Because I have a few like that. So I would just separately type out the text and then put it where? Yeah, I mean, I'd upload it probably as another, um, okay. I Like, this is getting a little beyond, like, what I've, I've worked on before. But I would probably upload it maybe as a text file okay. somewhere and then put a caption on, like, the infographic that says, um, okay, I mean... You know, don't make it say click here, but <laughs> say, <laughs> say, you know, like to see the text file of this infographic or just text file this infographic and that's the link. Okay. To gotcha. The text file. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that it depends on your graphic too and like how, because text files aren't necessarily going to be the easiest to read. You could do it as a separate blog post that's not linked. Mm. You know, I wouldn't yeah. link it then through, like, I wouldn't tag it as a category or anything. Sure. It would be linked. And then, like, that would also be searchable by Google. And mm. so you could create a whole separate page that's just kind of that infographic and then just the text. Mm. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, like, it, you know. Yeah, you can that makes sense. It, but, uh, could, wow, we, who knew you could get so deep into alt text? <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's stuff that I had never thought through, honestly. And I have quite a few graphics that have text on them that I just never would have thought to you know, consider those as like something to make more accessible. So, yeah, I mean, so really everything needs to be. So, I mean, people like there are people that are using adaptive technology, so a variety of different things. So it's like, screen readers or people who are just tabbing through your website or a variety of different ways. Those are probably some of the biggest too. Like they can't use a mouse or, you know, people can't hear, people can't see, or like it's all a spectrum, right? Too. Yeah. But I think the way to think about it is if someone can't see, can they still get this information? If someone can't hear, can they still get this information? And so you need to make sure that both of those things are true, especially for content creators. Then if you were, say, a developer, there's kind of more on that, looking at, like, okay, well, if they can't do those things, then, how, like, do I have it set up properly so they can access it? But, like, as food bloggers and content creators, that's that's not something we're typically dealing with. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Okay, that makes sense. And I, as I write my alt tags, I do keep that in mind. So, I think if someone were visually impaired and they were on my site, what would they want to know about this image besides, you know, like you said, besides being just a blob of chili in a bowl, is there anything else that we want to convey about it? So that always helps me every single time I write it. I think of the visually impaired. So 
It's kind of a good way to frame it. So what else within our blog posts or on our websites should we be considering? I mean, so really all of it. <laughs> but, <laughs> Everything. Um, with headings, like the, the heading tags, I've seen a lot of questions about this more related to SEO. And I think that also a good thing, you know, I've been on here before. I've been like, it should be user first, not SEO first. Yep. But most people have, most food bloggers still have this really SEO first mentality. And I think even with the accessibility stuff, that's going to kind of, you're going to feel like, oh, these things are at battle or something. But SEO should not, like Google will look at this stuff, like they're reading the stuff that's already there for accessibility and for good user standards and all of that. So it'll work with Google, right? Like you don't need to worry about that. It doesn't need to be either or. I think people right. get in that mentality. Yeah, like yeah. Either I'm focusing on SEO or I'm cheating on SEO and focusing on <laughs> user experience. Right. But if you focus on user experience, part of it is accessibility, you'll be fine with Google. So the heading tags are also something that is important because it helps the screen readers and people who are accessing your site in different ways pull it up because they can it can read just like your heading tags, right? So it'll say, do you want to jump to this heading? Do you want to jump to this heading? That type of thing. So having heading tags that are clear and descriptive and not repetitive, that's been a big thing like with SEO and not like... Guys, okay, heading tags will make much more sense if you don't think of them as an SEO thing, right? Mm. Like, just think of them as an outline. Like, if you were writing a paper in third grade or something, we learned about outlines, right? It's like the top one is bigger, and then there's all these subheads, and that's all this is. And so, if your main topic is on chili, you don't need to be saying chili over and over because people know the page is about chili. Also, yeah. Google knows the pages about chili. So <laughs> just use like your heading tag. So your main page title will be H1 and then your subheads can be H2s and then sometimes an H3. And then your theme often will be using some like H4s or H5s or something for like just smaller things they're doing that you don't necessarily need to worry about. So just make sure they're clear and they're descriptive. So imagine somebody's trying to read your page and really all they're seeing at first are your heading tags. And does that give a good mm -hmm. outline and explain what's going on in your page? Because that is how some people are accessing your page. That's a great way to think about it. Like those third grade outlines totally brought me back to, <laughs> oh my gosh, I remember was being Was it third grade? I, I feel like so. it was third grade. I think it was third or fourth or, Yeah. yeah but just being stressed out about it at the time, but it really taught me how to frame what I was thinking through and what I was, it was like writing. so important. I know. And, and you're like, I'll never use this in real life. Well, now and, you and are. And now we are. <laughs> but that's a great way to frame it. I like that. So aside from that, is there anything else just within the blog content or did we cover it all, do you think? Well, I'm sure we didn't cover it all. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot kind of out there in different ways to think about it. But oh, one thing I was going to mention with the, when you were talking about having text on your images. So I don't know like how you're using that, but if it's like an infographic, that's fine. And like we talked about have a text alternative, but it used to be often, I don't remember when, but I've been doing this for a while. 
it used to be where we would often save like headlines and different words as an image. And that is not considered mm-hmm. standard or whatever you'd call it now. The logo is an exception to that. But don't just save text. Like if you have a quote or something, don't save it as an image and put it on your blog post. Just put the quote in text and put it on your blog post, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, I could see an example where somebody like, you have a quote you're using on Instagram or something. And you're like, oh, I'm just going to like repurpose this image I made and put it on my blog. It'd be much better if you just put that quote Type as text. Out. Yeah. yeah. So that and then... For your logo, it's fine if that is saved as an image because it is an image, right? Yeah. Just make sure you have the alt text in there appropriately that, you know, says food blog usability logo or whatever, whatever so it is. So you alt text your logo even just... Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, so I mean anything, right? Because that's communicating mm-hmm. a lot. I mean, we all <laughs> also working on developing websites. We all value our logo way more than anybody else does. Yeah. But true. if we like want other people to understand it, it needs to have alt text on it. And that helps for things like SEO too, right? Just kind of like yeah. baseline what what is this page about? Um Wow, there's a lot to think about. So you've given us a lot of action steps so we can go through our blogs and do these things and be more accessible. And I really think that we could probably go on and on. But Bethany mentioned her guide that we will link to in her in the show notes for this episode. And that's really helpful for food bloggers just to look through and get some more ideas about what we can do specifically to our websites. But let's talk a little bit about video because A lot of us are producing videos and putting them out into the world on YouTube, our blog, social media. So give us some thoughts about what we should be doing to our videos. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this, some of this, like my brain does have a hard time wrapping or getting wrapped around because I think also because I haven't done tons with video before, but again, you need to think if someone is blind, how can they get this information if someone is deaf, how can they get this information? And so there's just the basics of doing like closed captioning. Then there's also transcripts. And there's also, okay, so there's closed captioning. Maybe you know this, Megan, because I'm going to try to remember. There's two things that are kind of like closed captioning, but the other one's not Mm. exactly the same. It's like when you have subtitles, I don't, I don't know. But there's, okay, so there's a difference. Yeah, and like I'm apparently sure they're is. similar, but not exactly the same. But in some countries, I think they are the same. But in other countries, okay. I don't know. And a lot of this with closed captioning also has to has to do with your like your media player or whatever tools you're using to play your video, upload your video, make your video. So ideally, you're going to find a tool that gives you the most accessibility options possible. And so, I mean, YouTube is one of the better ones with that. So you also, and this goes some to your blog too, if if anything auto plays, you need to have a way to stop it or pause it. Mm. And I think just close it out probably. Um, stop, oh, here it is, paused, stop, stopped or hidden for any automatically playing content. And that's something that your ad network could help you with? Yeah. I mean, those pop-up ads that 
the ad networks run. I don't, I don't think they'll be around forever because they're really kind of on the border of accessibility mm, because gotcha. things that just, you know, pop up and are automatically playing are really disruptive for a lot of people for a lot of reasons, right? If you're using something like a screen reader, if you're using different things, like if you say you're doing a screen reader or something, you're like halfway down the page and then all of a sudden something else pops up and now you're over here, you know, you have to figure out then how to close that and go back to where you were. And it's, it's really difficult. And so, yes, your ad network should have, and I think they do all have a way to be stopped or paused or hidden. I haven't seen ones that don't, but it's not the best (laughs) for the user experience. It's not the best for accessibility to have those. So I know they bring in a lot more revenue because they're so disruptive. Money makers. (laughs) I mean, that's, I mean, that's the correlation. The more disruptive something is, the more like response you get from it. Yeah, unfortunately. Um. And that's why people have a hard time saying goodbye. But yeah, I get, I get that it's not the greatest thing. Yeah. So I, yeah, I think that there'll probably be more guidelines coming out around things like that, especially because okay. auto plays, you know, like a pop-up is still less intrusive than an auto playing video that follows you around. So there's there's a spectrum, right? Like there's a spectrum to these things. (laughs) There's a spectrum with everything. (laughs) Yeah. So Um, with closed captioning, where and how do we get that? And do we do it? Okay. So going forward, we can, it's, we can do it up front to put it on our videos, but what about retroactively? Like how do we get our closed captioning on videos that we've already created? Um, I, I'm not an expert in video. <laughs> so some of this I probably don't know as well as like what we were just talking about on our blog page. But I th- there is like rev.com. Do they do yeah. that? Do you know? Yes. I actually okay. I think that's the one. Okay. I'm just going to verify that real quick because I don't want to speak. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's but... services out there that do it. You can upload it to... YouTube, um, it'll put captions on and then you should go back in and edit those because, you know, we've all seen where it does not always do it correctly. Yeah. Um, I was just reading some transcription where it was like the person's name was like always switched to this word that was like, it wasn't quite a bad word, but wasn't it? Word? <laughs> oh, I don't terrible. remember what it was now, but I'm like, y'all should have checked that. Um, that's funny. Okay, so, it is rev.com. So this is the one that a few other bloggers were telling me they uploaded their existing videos to mm-hmm. and it was a piece of cake. I have not personally tried it, but they said it was super easy. It's relatively affordable. So that's one to look at if you're yeah, and wanting heard, to put I've heard a lot of good things about them. Like that I think they're kind of the main the go-to layer people right now in that yeah I, they offer a lot of services for not i mean not just captioning your videos but i think they'll do transcripts and do all sorts of things so cool. there are apps you know apps that do it you could just upload it to youtube and get it there and then go back in and change it what about hands and pans videos where we're not talking and there's like music i've heard that we need to put like upbeat music or something on the screen just to signify that something is going on. Yeah, so I've been thinking 
about that one too more. So I think what needs to happen is yes, like for the closed captioning, you should probably put like upbeat music or whatever. But then there should also be a text file along with it that has a transcription or just the shots. So if you were like doing, and I listen, I haven't made these videos. I haven't worked with food bloggers <laughs> making them. So I don't know how you guys do it. But like, do you have like a shot list that you go through or mm, um, you just kind I mean, of know it in your head? That's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, if you were working like on a, like making an actual film for Hollywood or whatever, right? You'd have this whole script and you'd have the shot list and, you know, they even go through like you need a shot of this thing cooking and then it goes back to dialogue if it's a real movie or something. Like a storyboard. Yeah. And so I think that's what you need in, in like some sort of text format is just a shot list basically. So it'd be like shot of meat in frying pan shot of me stirring in pasta shot of um oh so my that gosh so much be, work <laughs> that is so much yeah, work i know i knew people like i know oh, <laughs> i did not want to hear that so basically this is an opportunity for somebody listening you know you want to make extra money step in and be the the person who writes these scripts for people because food bloggers don't want to do this typically I mean, I don't think it's actually, for most of those videos, I really don't think it, it feels like it's a lot harder and really overwhelming, but it's not going to be that much. I mean, like, how many different shots really, like, in a two-minute video? Right. And, you you know, you can just type it out quickly. It doesn't have to be super descriptive. It just needs to be kind of what's going on as a baseline. All right, fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then, well... Part of the question I have with that too, which I guess we'll get into social media stuff later too, is like if you're sharing that video across platforms, then like right. how how was that that feeling? Really? Yeah. Well, is there anything else else with video? Not really, because that's kind of the only thing, right? Just the closed captioning, and then maybe like writing points, talking through the not talking, writing through your storyboard if you have something. Yeah. Like so that. I mean, I think probably like. I mentioned before there's different levels kind of of this. So in the highest level, I would imagine that all video would have closed captioning and a transcription and even a transcription that's like possibly mapped to, I've seen some software where it's transcribed and then when you click on the sentence, it goes to that point in the video, Um, which I don't think like, don't hear me that you need to go out and do that right now. Like, I think that's just a higher level of accessibility yeah. that you could do, but really think through if someone is blind, how, how are they getting this information? If someone is deaf, how are they getting right. this information? And so I think doing more with transcriptions, because if they're blind, they can't read the closed captioning, right? Mm-hmm. They could hear the right. audio, but if there's no audio, right, that's like the hands and pans situation. Right, right, right. So you have to have a text description. Well, this just goes back to what you were saying. Don't make these changes based on like not wanting to get sued. Make the changes really with people with disabilities in mind and what they experience when they consume your content without sight or without hearing or fill in the blank. So I think if we just move forward with those kind of frame of references in mind, then it's going to be much easier to make these changes. 
So yeah, talk and to us I about. Think if, oh. it, sorry, if you're doing the like hands and pans videos, really, I mean, some are more just entertaining, but some, if you are doing it more to really teach somebody how to do mm-hmm. make the recipe, like having a text, you know, shot list or something is going to be helpful for a lot of people. Yeah. It's not just people with a disability around it. Like, that's true. I feel like I would click on it. And the interesting thing is technology is always changing. And, you know, we saw Google came out recently with more instructions on guided recipes. Mm -hmm. You know, a text file like this may be something that would work well within something like that with different devices or displaying recipes differently. And, you know, so there's a lot like... It may come to a time where you're like, I'm so glad I've been doing this because yeah, now right. this new technology is using this. That's so. true. That's a great way to think of it, too. Getting on Alexa and all of those different yeah, devices. Yeah, I because mean, if it pulls up your video and then it's reading you know, yeah. your shot list somehow, or you know, you just kind of never know what's going to happen. Yeah. So I, I think doing this stuff isn't, it's not going to hurt you, you know. I know it's a little bit more work, but. Um, yeah. I think it can definitely open up a much wider audience for you and people will hopefully get less and less frustrated with food blogs. So yeah, that's people a need to hear that. Like, <laughs> it is and opening up an audience for people. I mean, I think all of our ears perk when we hear that because we work so hard to get those people and those views on our content. So this really is another avenue that we could open up opportunity. So, okay, social media, you mentioned that you recently did a little bit of research and found some interesting findings about social media and web accessibility. So talk us through that. Yeah, well, I've just been really like delving much more into this um, lately. And so one thing I did not know is that on Instagram and Facebook, you can actually put alt text in your images on both. Um, I'll talk about Instagram for a second there's just like when you're posting your image there's something that says like I don't remember exactly now just like extras or more like more extras or whatever right at the bottom and you just click there and it has a space for alt text and so you can add it there and that should also help with being more findable on Instagram and Instagram's algorithm reading what your image is about so I suggest doing that it's not going to take you too much more time and then that makes it accessible i mean imagine if you're like one of the only food bloggers doing it and then somebody mm, yeah in the you know whatever community finds that and tells all their friends oh hey this person you can actually like see their right. instagram feed because they have the alt text on it you know can so, you t- tell me where that's at again because i'm in instagram right now and I'm let me to... pull up my instagram and see so if you select a photo and then um, my phone's slow, so. <laughs> <laughs> and on Facebook, well, I'm pulling this up on Facebook. Also, there's a way to do it. I was having to like put up my image and then click to edit the image. So it was like before I posted the image, though, I'd like put up the image and then I would click on that image. Does that make sense? So I kind of upload it and then. It, and then it gives you a space where you can write in the text on Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. But then if I click the image again, it would come up with an edit button. And I get, you could put like different filters and stuff in that way too. But then there was also like a more options 
Okay. They'll pop up and then within there you can open accessibility options and okay. add in alt text. And then also for Facebook, so I was kind of researching like videos, how to do it on there and what they want you to do. I mean, Facebook is kind of, <laughs> what they want you to do is just then put up a link to your, the text. So if you have a transcription of your video, okay. put a gotcha. link in the description, right, to that. So the same with infographics, like we were talking about, if you post an infographic on Facebook and then put the link to your text file about it or your post that has the description of what's in the okay in the infographic. So I was actually looking, Facebook has a like Facebook accessibility page. And mm. I was looking at that and they put up an infographic that was super hard to read and they did not have <laughs> any like, text about it. And everybody is like, guys, like, isn't this kind of ironic? Nobody, like I can even read it because it was just so small. Oh gosh, is it like, a joke? Um, no, they just didn't. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's probably like, you know, somebody was like, we need to start this account. And then the people working yeah. on it, like, don't. So that also goes to like making sure the people that you're working with, or if you hire somebody as a graphic designer, if you hire somebody to develop or do more on your website, you know, make sure that they understand these things and you can put it in your contract that somebody is designing a website for you that it needs to meet the WCAG 2.1 standards. You also can look for themes and plugins that are doing this. I would say, like we talked about at the beginning, um, it's kind of a process. Like a lot of people are getting more on board with it. So I know a lot of themes like feast themes, which many food bloggers use, they're really on board with this. They're making a lot of changes towards this. So I think if you stick with them, you're good. If you're on another theme, just maybe take a little time to do research and see what they're offering for accessibility and if they're making any changes towards that. Same with plugins, all of that. So it's not just about you creating the content. It's about like the tools you're using and the people you work with and making sure everybody's really on board yes. uh, with that whole situation. Okay. So I did find the spot in Instagram. So once you get past the photo, you are at the point where you're writing copy. So it says new post at the top. And then that's mm -hmm. where you can like tag people, add location. Down at the very bottom, there's something that says advanced settings. If yes, you tap that, then there is this whole area for accessibility. And you can write alt text. Oh my gosh, who knew? So we should be doing that for every single photo that we upload to Instagram. So should we be kind of framing it the same way we do alt text on our blog? Like the exact same like bowl of chili on a pink placemat, like that sort of thing? Yeah, I think that's best. I mean, I okay. know, I mean, different food bloggers use Instagram kind of differently. So yeah, like I, for okay. most people, that's probably the best way to do it. I mean, sometimes people are posting like pictures of their food, but a little quote with it. But the quote is in your is in your text, you know, your yeah. main text. Right, right, right. So just, again, think about what you're trying to communicate with that image that you're posting. But I would just, you know, bowl of chili. Basically treat it the fine. same way. Yeah. And by the way, I just found this. You can edit a photo that you've already posted 
And it's really handy because in the lower right-hand corner of the image, there's something that pops up that says alt text. If you click on that, tap on it, you can write your alt text. So if you want to go back and do it to posts that have already been published, you can do that too. Wow, I learned something new today. That's pretty cool. Okay, so what else about social media should be on our radar concerning web accessibility? Um, okay, so stories, like Instagram stories or Facebook stories, those you really should have some sort of captioning on them if you're doing just like the mm -hmm. videos of you talking. So there's some apps you can use to put that on, or you can do just a, a description which is what I usually do on mine, of what you're saying. So it's not a full transcript of it. I actually was playing with just doing kind of like the closed captioning stuff on there. And it like just the way stories work, it's a little harder to read. So what I'm in favor of doing is just, and it, dep it depends on your brand. It depends how much you're talking. It depends on what you're doing, is just doing a brief summary in text of what you're saying so i mean it's what 15 seconds and then yeah you know like i just summarize and i mean it's really helpful because it helps me condense down my thoughts actually sure so i know it takes a lot more time doing it that way that's why i don't do it stories does. as often really as does. i as i want to and not even for accessibility but people have a much higher like view through rate if I have those because mm. people drop off if I'm just talking and there's no because people don't listen with audio on a lot to stories yeah. the other thing which I don't quite have the answer to right now is that if you have say an image with no audio right so someone who is blind wouldn't know what's happening on there and because sure. it's all an image it couldn't be read well I don't know. Maybe it can be read, probably depending how you have the text on there. Maybe it can be read by a screen reader, actually. So I just make sure you have a little text on there if you want to communicate something. But I think things like stories, like this is a good example where it's kind of a newer technology. It's an evolving technology. Instagram and Facebook will likely come out at some point with more options to make those more accessible or there'll be some app that comes out with that or something, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, like if I think you should start putting captions on your Instagram images or not captions, alt text on your yeah. Instagram and Facebook posts. It certainly can't hurt, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Another thing, I'm just going to add that to my list, Bethany. Thanks for <laughs> adding to my schedule I, for the month. <laughs> Just kidding. Totally kidding. This is actually really great information. I'm just like digging into it too and trying to figure out where to start. How much do I really need to do right now? Do I let some of this play out as the court cases evolve? You know, so it's like, I guess for me, it's really easy to do those couple of changes that you mentioned in the beginning of our conversation about like link colors, contrast, that is easy. And going forward, adding alt text to my Instagram photos, that's easy. So I guess like we do have a good place to start with all of that. And then just the rest of it that seems more involved, we can just kind of see what happens and go from there. But you've given us some really great. Um, well, I mean, I would 
not necessarily <laughs> go with the see what happens because I mean this is like regardless this is stuff that's going to make your website better to all users it's going to make it more accessible to people with disabilities and there's maybe a few things that are seem a little more like like I was talking about some with the video of like the transcription linking to the specific right. part in the video I mean some of that I think but the majority of what we've talked about now is just going to be good user experience type things that you need to do. And I think once you get into it, like it feels overwhelming when we're just listing off things. But when you get into it, it's not going to be as bad as it seems. So I think just you can download my guide and just kind of make a plan and just start working through those. And you can set a date if you want to meet certain guidelines and say, I will make sure my website meets these guidelines by this date or whatever. I've heard some people talk about, I've heard it suggested a couple of places actually, where you can actually make like a statement, an accessibility statement and put that up on your website that kind of says, we're working on this. Here's my goals. Here's kind of the timeline that I'm working towards, like making my my site meet all the WCAG standards by December 2021 or whatever. So yeah, that's yeah. smart. I like that. Giving people kind of a time frame. Yeah. So and it helps you stick it. to it because it's, you know, like a lot of this stuff is not, it takes some time to kind of think through and make a plan for and maybe learn a little bit about. But once you get it in your rhythm, it's not going to be things that you really yeah exactly you know yeah that's kind of what I was saying before like there are things you can do that are very easy and that you can add to your your process but I am sorry Bethany I am not going to go through all of my (laughs) existing videos and write like the I mean I think it's a great idea I do I get I get it and I get how that will improve people's experiences with our content but I just like feasibly, I am not going to do that right now. I mean, if someone tells me, yes, you have to do it, then I will go through and write, this is a plate of nachos being removed from a counter, you know, like, oh my gosh. One thing to think about is like, what can you do going forward Yeah, as opposed to fixing everything that's there already? So, you know, maybe you kind of decide, hey, like those are never going to get fixed unless... Yes, exactly. Like, I'm yeah, cool, I like right? that. But like going forward, you're like, oh, okay, like this is, and maybe not tomorrow you're going to start doing it, but like, okay, I'm going to make a goal by like the end of September. This is going to be something that I figure mm-hmm. out how to do or whatever, right? So yes. then going forward, you have that. And the same with alt text. I know some people have not been doing alt text on their website. And that's something we'll link to too. There's there's a plugin um, from NerdPress that will help you figure out where you're missing alt text and it makes it easier to Ooh, go in. That's good to know. And yeah. um, fix those in the past, which can be quite a lot of work. I do highly suggest going back and that's one thing I think you should, if you haven't been doing it, to go back and fix. Mm-hmm. Um, but if that does, like, at least try to start doing these things going forward, right? Yes. If it's way too overwhelming to try to be like, I have to go back and fix all <laughs> 10 years mm. of content. <laughs> at least first step, like, I'm going to work on this going forward, right? 
I like that. I can handle that. That I can yeah. like process. So, <laughs> yeah, the like the stuff you've already done. It's like, oh my gosh! Especially if you start thinking about social media and all of that. Mm-hmm. Like that can't is, even go there. My yeah. brain won't I, I shut mean, down. I don't think. I think for things you already have up, like alt text is probably the most most important one. Okay. So if anything, if we comb through anything that we've already created and published, alt text is the thing that we should focus on. Yeah. And I mean, I guess some of that depends. If I mean, if you're a huge video person or, you know, some of it is based on like what you've done a lot with. Sure. Or whatever. That but makes sense too. I think most, if you're like a YouTuber, they put captions on your YouTube mm-hmm. um, channel anyway. So, I mean, some of that's going to be taken care of by your you know, where you're uploading it and, and things like that too. So. Right. Yeah. I can see where if you were a, just a massive YouTube blogger, if you had a massive YouTube channel, then yeah, you should probably go like comb through that as much as you can. But I don't, and I, I don't think a lot of food bloggers do. So maybe putting your focus on alt tags on your blog would be a good first step. Okay. Yeah, we have covered Hopefully, hopefully so much- people are still accessing all of those recipes on your blog, right? Hopefully. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully. Um, there is so much here and I think this is going to be really valuable. And I just stress again, go get Bethany's guide because I thought that was really, it's really succinct. It's not like overwhelming. It's not like a super long guide, but it's just got a lot of great information inside of it. So we are going to put some show notes together for you, Bethany, as always. And since this is your fourth time on the show, we're going to put those at eatblogtalk.com forward slash Bethany Smith four. Is there anything that you just feel like we need to touch on before we say goodbye? Um, I feel like this time's supposed to be more inspirational, but I did think one other thing I wanted to mention is yeah. there are some apps I've seen people or not apps, plugins to put on their site that has like the little icon on the side. I forget the name of, there's some really popular ones, um, but then let people like adjust the font size and colors and do all those things. Um, I think that's a nice option, but it does not address the majority of the things that we've talked about today. So yes, you can add that plugin if you want to. I think most people who need those things probably are using something else to make that happen or just know how to adjust in their browser, like the size of the text or something. But that's not going to solve a lot of this. That doesn't write your alt text. Right. right. Like, yeah, that doesn't that change your headline structure. Yeah. So you you still that's not like this magical fix for it. Well, that's good to know because I'm sure a lot of people are like, yeah, just wondering, should I be doing this or not? Yeah. So, um so you know, I think some of this, like, it feels overwhelming, but it also feels good when you start doing it because you're mm-hmm. like, wow, like, I'm really, like, making this accessible for everybody. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it's just going to be better all around and yeah, be a I better agree. content creator. And, you know, so. For sure. And you're making your, you're diversifying your audience, too, by making your content more accessible. Yeah. Um, and not, I love that you pointed out earlier, It's not. this is not just for disabled people. This is also for the average person who is not disabled, who just wants to consume your content in maybe a more robust way or a different way. So looking at it that way, too, is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, I don't like yeah. listening to videos with audio very often. So I almost always use, like, 
the closed captioning and yeah same i hardly ever do either yeah so So i always appreciate it when people do that well thank you bethany this was a very very in-depth and great conversation and i really appreciate you being here today i know you're busy you have two little boys to take care of so thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to talk about this today Yes, thank you for having me again. And I think we've all heard where to find you online, but why don't you say your website again, just in case people want to go check you out. Yeah, so I have my website's at foodblogusability.com, but then my social channels, like Instagram, I try to do more on there, is at Kadia Marketing. That was more my like web design business. So Instagram and Facebook, you can find me at Kadia Marketing and then foodblogusability.com com is my website. And Bethany has tons of valuable information for food bloggers, by the way, and she puts a lot of it up, well, on her blog, but also on Instagram. And I love all of the stuff you post. It's just really informative and helpful for us food bloggers. So go check Thanks. her out. Definitely follow her. Oh, and in the Eat Blog Talk forum. Oh, of course. Right, there Megan? Too. Yes. Because yeah. I'm the community <laughs> manager over there. So if yes. you have any questions or just comments or whatever, like that's a really good place to reach me um, also. And yeah, so just go over there and post your questions and I will answer you in the Eat Blog Talk forum. Yes, definitely. And thank you for mentioning that. <laughs> so thanks again for being here today, Bethany. And thank you for listening today, food bloggers. I will see you next time. We're glad you could join us on this episode of Eat Blog Talk. For more resources based on today's discussion, as well as show notes and an opportunity to be on a future episode of the show, be sure to head to eatblogtalk.com. If you feel that hunger for information, we'll be here to feed you on Eat Blog Talk.